As we prepare to receive now God's holy and errant and fallible word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray together. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth find freedom, and that in your will discover your peace. For we pray these things through the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We are beginning our a new sermon series through the epistles of John. So we begin at the beginning, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Most of you are aware that we are a good way into a teaching series on Christian assurance in our adult Sunday school class. I pray that this has been helpful and a blessing for those of you who have been attending that class. But as I considered and prayed about where we would turn in God's word for our next sermon series, I thought that it would be very edifying for us as a congregation to push more deeply into this topic of Christian assurance by walking through the epistles of John together. Uh, For those of you who have been attending the adult Sunday school class, you have heard that the dominant theme of 1 John is assurance. And we need to note that the assurance that we are presented with in John's letters is not just some abstract idea. Uh, Although we should trust God at his word, John is not telling us that we are to be assured of our salvation simply because God declares that those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ possess it. Rather, as the great Reformed pastor and biblical scholar James Montgomery Boyce notes, the Apostle John works on a more practical level showing that the Christian can be assured of his salvation in that God has brought about fundamental changes in his life. He has given him a sure knowledge of himself in Jesus Christ. This involves truth. He has given him a desire to pursue and obey the commandments of Christ. This involves righteousness. He has given him a new relationship with other believers. This involves love. 
And these three, truth, righteousness, and love, are essential elements of the Christian life. Uh, Lord willing, our time in John will reveal to us how they are necessary from a personal, experiential level for one to truly be assured of his or her salvation in Jesus Christ. As Boyce articulates it, only when all three are present that any of us can claim to have a well-rounded, vital, and growing Christian experience. So what we will discover is that John presents these three elements as tests throughout this first epistle. There is a doctrinal test, a test of truth based on belief in Jesus Christ. There is a moral test, a test of righteousness or obedience to Jesus Christ in his word. And there is a social test, the test of love. These are all avenues of assurance, right belief, right obedience, and right love. John then will challenge us to examine ourselves on all three of these aspects of our lives, helping us to not only have confidence that we are truly saved, but also helping us to guard against simply presuming that we are saved. That we are saved simply because at some point in our lives we walked the aisle, we prayed a prayer, we articulated some belief that Jesus died to save us from our sins, we had some religious experience at a retreat once. What we are after is true assurance, a a deep confidence based on true faith. And scripture provides various affirmations that we as believers in Jesus Christ can know and should know that we are children of God, forgiven of our sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, reconciled to our heavenly father in him, and adopted by God in the power of his Holy Spirit. For instance, as the Apostle Paul stated to the Colossians, that he wrote to them that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Or as the author of Hebrews wrote, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, the the authors of the New Testament writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit speak to the church with a deep sense that it is a good and right thing for believers to have assurance of salvation. And John will say towards the end of this letter that we call 1 John, in chapter 5 and verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is John's primary purpose for writing. Now, it's not the only purpose John is 
writing for. John also provides some other purposes for writing these epistles. For instance, he's writing to promote joy. We're going to see that in these verses this morning. He's writing to prevent sin in the family of God. We're going to see that in chapter 2. We'll also see in chapter 2 that John is writing to protect the church from false teachers. So there are some other purposes for writing, but primarily it is that Christians might have full conviction, a full assurance of faith in Jesus Christ. And John doesn't waste any time, as we see here in the opening of this letter. Uh, This letter doesn't begin as a normal letter. It doesn't begin as second or third John or almost any letter in the New Testament, save maybe Hebrews. There is no salutation or personal reference. It doesn't begin by saying John, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the churches in Ephesus, grace and peace to you. Rather, it begins in a manner much more like John's gospel. It begins with a prologue. And like his gospel, this prologue seeks to establish right belief in the person of Jesus Christ. John testifies to the reality and truth of Jesus. And this was particularly important, not just because Jesus Christ is essential to Christianity, as Boyce states, without Christ there would be no Christianity. But here is the problem. There were many who were and really still are, proclaiming different things about Jesus. As we will see in the weeks to come, the context into which John was writing at the end of the first century is one in which there were false teachers present and active. And these false teachers were threatening to lead many astray by denying, as John will indicate in chapter 2, that Jesus is the Christ. They were denying that. And more precisely, as John will indicate in chapter 4, these false teachers were denying that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And so, we must ask ourselves, if Christ is essential to Christianity, then what should we believe about him? You can't have true assurance of salvation if you have placed your faith in a Jesus who isn't the Jesus of the Gospels. If you have placed faith in a Jesus who doesn't actually exist and who can't actually save you. So it isn't only essential to understand that Christ is essential to Christianity, it is also essential that we have a proper understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. John then begins in a way to bring the church back to first principles. As Ian Hamilton put it, the gospel is anchored in the historical, visible, verifiable revelation of God's incarnate son. The gospel is anchored in the historical, visible, verifiable revelation of God's incarnate son. And this is what John presents us here in these opening verses. He presents us with a historical Jesus who is both fully God and fully man. This is a Jesus who was, as John begins his letter, from the beginning. John is establishing what he did in the prologue to his gospel, that before Jesus was made manifest on earth as a man, Jesus was. 
John is implying that there was not a time when Jesus was not. And John will say in verse 2, We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So John is expressing here the eternal pre-existence of God's Son, who before his physical manifestation as a man in time and space was with the Father. So before the world ever existed, there was one God who was, as John Stott put it, did not enjoy immortal solitude, but conscious, continuous, intimate communion as son with the Father. But, but John also provides a strong testimony that this eternal pre-existing son did, in the fullness of time, enter time and space and appear to many. And John declares himself to be a witness of this manifestation. John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Now, don't miss what John is doing here. Against these false teachers who were denying that Jesus came in the flesh, John presents us with objective evidences that Jesus, the the one who was pre-existent, who was with the Father in the beginning, was made truly man. John and others in Jesus' time on earth heard him. They saw him. They touched him. And these verbs detailing the objective evidences of the person of Jesus Christ provided to us by an eyewitness tell us all that we need to know. John first stressed that they had heard Jesus. The, The word of God had become flesh And John had spent years devoted to listening to the word made flesh, preach, and teach. And what amazing words were spoken by Jesus that John himself was privileged to hear and now share. They were words that others had heard and declared no one ever spoke like this man, as John recorded in John chapter 7. And Jesus himself even declared of those who had been with him, listening to him preach and teach, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And John had both heard and seen Jesus, as he underscores here. We really have to pay attention here to the Greek, though. You see, the the common Greek word for to see is blepo. It it indicates that an object has impressed itself upon our eyes. You see, for instance, that I'm wearing a black robe. It is the word that John uses in John 20 when John recounts arriving first at the tomb of Jesus ahead of Peter on Easter morning. And John states that he looked into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there where the body of Jesus had been. Seeing here is simply telling us what object had been observed. But then 
Peter entered the tomb, and John 20 states that Peter saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And interestingly, the word for saw in Peter's case is different. It's a different Greek word than the common Greek word used for John's initial experience of the tomb. This second word for to see means more than just seeing an object, but to behold with intelligence, to perceive, to scrutinize. You see, Peter wasn't just seeing. He was trying to make sense out of what was in the tomb and what was missing from the tomb. But the text isn't done. It goes on to say that John also entered the tomb in that he saw and believed. This verb, for to see, is different than the first two, though. It means to see with understanding. John had seen the empty tomb in a way that he came away with the insight that led to belief in the resurrection. And it is this last word for to see that John uses here in 1 John. They hadn't just seen Jesus. They had seen Jesus as John had seen the empty tomb. John had seen, he had scrutinized. There had been an intentional gazing upon Jesus for the years the disciples had been with him. And John had come to see Jesus with the insight that led to faith. John had heard Jesus. John had seen Jesus. But John also highlights that they had touched him with their hands as well. This is, as Boyce comments, the most intimate experience of all. Almost certainly, John is referencing the invitation Jesus offered his disciples after his resurrection recorded in Luke 24 and preserved in John's account of Christ's appearance to Thomas. But it's Luke who uses the exact word used here for to touch when he records Jesus' words to his disciples. Jesus says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, was not a ghost. He was not a phantom. He was not an aberration. He had come in the flesh. He had risen from the dead in the flesh. John and the other apostles were eyewitnesses to this reality. They had heard, they had seen, and they had touched. Now, we cannot hear, see, and touch Christ as the apostles did, but their testimony is given in order that we receive their word and believe. John says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And John is pointing us to the gospel message here, which has Jesus Christ at the center. This is the word of life he refers to in the first verse. It is the message of Jesus who is life and comes to bring eternal life to all who believe. 
And this is precisely why John wrote his gospel. He states in his gospel, John chapter 20 and verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The gospel was intended to tell the story of Jesus, that people might hear and believe and have life. And Jesus gave his disciples the authority to go out and to share the gospel as eyewitnesses of his life, death, and resurrection. John hints at this by using the verb proclaim here, which points to the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples to go and proclaim the gospel. So John, in obedience to Christ, proclaims the message that they heard and saw in Jesus that we might have true belief. And obviously, we can only believe if the Holy Spirit makes us capable of believing, just as the Spirit did with the apostles. So we cannot have the objective experience they did, but we must receive their word about it and through that have the same subjective experience as they had. And if we're going to have assurance of salvation, then we must believe in this Jesus presented to us by John and the other apostles. For without this Jesus, a Jesus who is both fully God and fully man, who entered our time and space, then Christianity ceases to be Christianity. As James Montgomery Boyce states, if Jesus did not really come in the flesh, die for sin, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven from which he will come again, then Christianity is stripped of its essential doctrines. There is no sure revelation of God. There is no atonement for sin, no hope for life beyond the grave, no future either for the world or for the individual. Without the historical Christ and his work, there is nothing left to work with. And what we need to recognize is that the false teaching and the false perceptions of Jesus are just as real and just as dangerous today as they were in John's time. The historical Jesus, the Jesus presented to us in the gospel and through apostolic teaching is the only Jesus who has the power to save us. But he is also the Jesus who stands as Lord over our lives, whose word is to be heard and obeyed. He is not the Jesus who is simply a wise moral teacher. He is not the Jesus who wants to to be your buddy, who loves you just the way that you are and doesn't expect you to change at all, but encourages you to follow your heart, who wants simply to inspire you with the power of positive thinking in order that you can live your best life. That's not the Jesus presented to us in the Gospels. This is feel-good spirituality. And it's presenting us with a Jesus who doesn't call us to repent of our sin who doesn't call us to turn to him to find forgiveness in life, who doesn't challenge us to to lay down our life for the sake of gaining true life. The false teachers of John's day were tempting the church with an easy believism, which is what made it appealing. 
We need to see that this temptation is just as real and widely popular today as it was then. John is telling us here that we must reject any form of Christianity that is not deeply rooted in the person and work of the historical Jesus Christ. So John begins with what is essential to the Christian faith, the person of Jesus. But notice what John says next. John states in verse 3 that he has proclaimed the gospel to them so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now, isn't it striking that the stated purpose of sharing the gospel is not, as we might expect, salvation, but rather fellowship? Isn't it assurance of salvation that we are after? Why then is John moving to fellowship? And what we must see is what theologians have pointed out, properly understood this Fellowship is the meaning of salvation in its widest embrace, including reconciliation to God in Christ. Fellowship, John says, with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Holiness of life that we will see in verse 6. And incorporation in the church. John says, you having fellowship with us. This fellowship is the meaning of eternal life. Jesus prays this in his high priestly prayer in John 17, doesn't he? And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing or having deep personal relationship with God. Eternal life is being in fellowship with God. In other words, we are saved to have fellowship with God, the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes that we might be drawn into fellowship, the fellowship that he shares with his heavenly Father. And Jesus makes it possible for us to enter into this blessed fellowship through faith in him. He he has done all of the work on our behalf that we might have access to this relationship with God. And by extension of our fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another as the body of Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled both to God and to one another. And so our fellowship with one another both arises from and depends upon our fellowship with God. And we can think again about the authority that John is hinting at here in these verses that has been given to him by Jesus as an apostle. Jesus had given the authority to his disciples, these men who had served as eyewitnesses to his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He had given them authority to share this message of the God who had manifested himself on earth, becoming fully human. And what was the goal of their sharing the gospel. It was to extend the fellowship shared between Jesus and his disciples to others, to the ends of the earth. So to put it more simply, Jesus came to earth to share the fellowship he enjoyed with his heavenly father. He shared this with his disciples that they might enter into this fellowship with him and his father. And then Jesus gave them authority to go out. He sent them forth to share the message of his life, death, and resurrection. 
in order that by believing on him, others might be drawn into this fellowship as well. And so we need to see the importance that not only of the person of Jesus Christ, but also the privilege of the fellowship that we have in him. The reality is that there is no communion with God without first having union with Jesus Christ. Without union with Jesus Christ, we don't have relationship with God. We, we don't have communion with him, which means we are not at peace with him and we do not have any sort of assurance. But here's the good news that we are being presented with here. God has given himself to us in Jesus Christ. And listen carefully to what I mean by that. God gives himself to us in Jesus Christ, which means that we don't merely get the benefits of Christ through faith in him. You aren't simply given forgiveness or adoption or sanctification. No, God gives himself to us in Jesus Christ by his spirit. We receive all of the benefits of Christ because you can't separate Christ from his benefits, but the, the greatest thing we receive isn't the benefits isn't the forgiveness of sins, isn't the power over sin, isn't righteousness. The greatest thing we receive is communion with God himself. We are brought into fellowship with him. This is why Jesus Christ has come, why he has died for us, that we might have communion with God, intimate, personal fellowship with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. This is why John brings up fellowship here in the third verse of his letter. And the reality is those who were presenting a false gospel, who were offering a Jesus who was not the Jesus given witness to by the apostles, were breaking the fellowship of the church. This is a tremendous problem. John is presenting us with the reality that the purpose of this great plan of God for the revelation of himself to the world and for their salvation is fellowship. How then, as Boyce puts it, can believers be content with that which disrupts their fellowship? How can believers be content with that which disrupts their fellowship? We shouldn't take anything that threatens fellowship lightly. And Boyce takes it a step further, though, by asking, or how can they be content with an evangelism that wins men to God but fails to draw them into a vital, invisible relationship with one another? Perhaps we should even consider not only evangelism without fellowship and discipleship within a church community, but the failure to evangelize at all. If we understand what John is telling us here, then we shouldn't miss the tragedy of not inviting others into this fellowship by the sharing of the gospel that has been so freely shared with us. And all of this leads us very nicely into the final part of the passage. John has shown us the importance of the person of Jesus Christ. He's shown us the importance of the privilege of fellowship but there's one final thing John says in verse 4 we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete our joy the the fullness of our joy is found in the fellowship created through the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ 
As John Stott said, the immediate purpose of the proclamation is the establishment of fellowship. The ultimate purpose is the completion of joy. And dearly beloved, this is why we stress membership so strongly here at Covenant. If you want the joy of salvation, it is only found in fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship within the church. And part of the reason for this is because through fellowship, we begin to share mutual interests, devotion, activity. As one commentator notes, as Christians in close fellowship with God, his heartbeat becomes our heartbeat. His mission becomes our mission. His goals and plans become our goals and plans. We love what he loves, desire what he desires, hate what he hates, and will what he wills. The Christian life should be an ever-deepening fellowship with God that creates and reproduces within us the mind of Christ. And as this happens, our, as our lives come into conformity with God, as the presence of Jesus in our lives and the power of the Spirit deepens, the result of that is joy. Joy is the response of the soul that is rightly related to God through the knowledge of Christ as Savior and Lord. As someone once said, the banner of joy will only fly over the castle of your life when the king is in residence there. And the fullness of joy is yet to come. When sin is fully and finally removed, when we have fellowship with God and one another unhindered by our sin, and we can look forward to that future day, but we can also experience a very real foretaste of that joy right now. Joy in fellowship with God and with one another. We will not get this from empty philosophies or from shallow versions of the person of Jesus. It is what we all long for, but until we come to true knowledge of Jesus Christ, until we come into fellowship with him and his people, it will remain elusive. This is John's message to us in these first few verses of this epistle. I pray that we would have ears to hear, hearts to believe, and that we would begin to experience even now the assurance of our salvation. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the witness of those who heard, who seen, who touched him. Lord, for their unwavering devotion to making him known, to giving us an objective account of his reality. And Lord, we pray that we would hear them. Lord, that we would place our faith in this Jesus who is presented to us by them. Lord, and that it would, in believing in him, bring us up into true fellowship, true communion with you. And Lord, as we enter into that fellowship, Lord, bring us evermore into deeper fellowship with one another, that our joy might be complete. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe. 
using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.